Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Years ago, H.G. Wells visualized roads such as these in his science fiction fantasies. And today they're a reality. You're listening to the Afternoon Commute. Welcome to the Afternoon Commute with Chris Kendall and John Adams. Today is 11-17-17. If you'd like to hear previous episodes of the Afternoon Commute, go to hoaxbusterscall.com and you'll see those posted up there alongside the most recent episode of Chris's Monday Night Broadcast, the original Hoaxbusters Call. Also posted up there are various articles and videos. Some of those are original in nature, so make sure you check those out. For any and all things Hoaxbusters, go to hoaxbusterscall.com today. Mr. Chris Kendall, how are you doing, sir? Well, I'm doing well. Just doing real good. That is good to hear. I'm glad to hear that. Um, I'm doing real well as well. Keeping it between the ditches, I hope. Yes. Yes, I'm uh, it's taking it easy here on a Friday night. And, um, yeah, just pondering a few things, going over some things. Um, so I got a stack of books here, and I thought we'd have a discussion about some of these quotes and um, kind of connect them into things. But it was interesting earlier on we were having a discussion this kind of there was something I'd been thinking about yesterday and then it was interesting our our conversation earlier kind of all formed into one big ball of wax here is so Chris and I were discussing um, songs which we do very often um, being audiophiles mm-hmm. and um, if anybody doesn't know what that means don't get the wrong idea that might get concerned with other types of files audiophile music lover sound lover right um, so there's like a, are you not talking about AIFF or WAV or MP3, but like no. fi- P, PH files? Yeah, I was making sure someone didn't think that you yourself were actually an audiophile that I was having a conversation with. Like I'm a synthetic AI voice. That's right, yes. It'd be pretty whacked out if it was. If I was, it'd be like, who the hell would make the voice sound like that? I know, right? 
<laughs> Out of all the voices they could have picked, right? <laughs> so, anyways, we were we were discussing. Um, we got we got off on a thread there, uh, where we were discussing uh, some songs. So there's a song um, from way back, uh, um, Lee Dorsey. It's called "Working in a Coal Mine." And another song that kind of corresponds, you know, roughly around the same time period. One of my um, one of my favorite singers is uh, Sam Cooke, and he had a song called uh, "The Sound of the Men Working on the Chain Gang." Uh, which, by the way, if you want to get the definitive version of that song, it has to be live at the Apollo. That's the best version of that song. Um, and and so then we moved on up into another uh, song that is kind of lamenting um, the modern world, and that would be the Vogue's uh, Five O'Clock World. And the lyrics to all of these songs are kind of the, uh, well, what we were discussing is like, you know, back in, you know, before the Civil War, you had this, uh, you know, this idea that comes, you know, down through American history kind of nostalgias, like the, the quote unquote Negro spiritual that comes out of the, you know, the slave songs, right? Right. And these things became incorporated into popular music as kind of the lament of the modern day worker. Mm-hmm. Well, if you kind of think about it with a certain kind of logic, if you have these songs and, you know, the other thing we were discussing is that these songs became kind of prevalent in the 1980s. Like, uh, my fr- you know, my friends and I growing up, we classified this type of stuff as blue collar rock where it's kind of the message of the song is kind of aimed at the at, at the average working man and the lyrics will kind of uh, correspond with that kind of um, imagery you know um, I think the whole inspirational rock movement of the 19 late 70s and 80s on it, on into the early 90s is is kind of, you know, part of that, oh, you know, it's kind of speaking metaphorically. I mean, how many, I mean, when you're a kid, you were already a teenager by this time, Chris, so you might not have thought this song was cool. You might have thought it was kind of lame, but um, the song Eye of the Tiger by Survivor, right? Can't remember what my thoughts were on it. I was, I don't know if I was a big fan of, uh, Survivor. They're probably too. They're probably too lame. Yeah, it's a little bit more into Judas Priest. Yeah, that kind of thing. Guns <laughs> and Roses, or maybe that was pre that, or yeah, yeah, a little bit. Uh, yeah, but like, but like me, I was you know like eight years old or something, right? I would make friend. I would make fun of my friends that liked lover boy i was like man that's <laughs> right exactly that's it. That like we were talking thing, yeah yeah we were talking about that earlier so same thing you know kind of eye of the tiger it's inspirational 
And it's not just inspirational because the movie Rocky, which is that's where it's from, Rocky Three, but it's inspirational to the average man who's got to wake up every morning. He's got the eye of the tiger. This is the music that comes on the clock, comes out of the clock radio when you wake up in the morning, right, to get you. And they will do that, by the way. Just so you know, radio stations will play things that kind of correspond to your programmed working day. Mm-hmm. You know? Eye of the Tiger, um, that will get you pumped, though. You, you it will. Uh, of course. You can't deny it. That's what I was saying is, is there's all these inspirational songs from that time period, and they've got this kind of message running through them. And like we were saying, uh, you know, uh, Lover Boy, everybody's working for the weekend. It's providing, you know, they'll, they'll, pl- they'll play that song on a Friday as you're sitting in traffic or, you know, or maybe like midday, like you, you got the radio on at work and, you know, everybody's working for the weekend. And then as we were discussing this, you know, we had this thought that we could actually trick because like people nowadays, they work on the weekends, right? So you're not really working for the weekend. You're working on the weekend. And we were thinking maybe we could like pull some, some like um, Mandela effect shenanigans. Chris would, Chris would put out a blog that's, that said, um, do you remember when this song said, everybody's working on the weekend and now it says everybody's working for the weekend okay john well we'll have to uh, i'll have to cut that out we'll have to redo this part um yeah john you remember that song what was it yeah that was lover boy everybody what is how does it go <laughs> <laughs> i think it went everybody's working on the weekend but now the song says everybody's working for the weekend go listen to it chris wait what do you mean are you serious that's that's what uh it's everybody's working for the weekend now now it says every everybody's working on the weekend is that what you said it used to say everybody's working on the weekend now it says everybody's working for the weekend yeah it always said everybody's working on the weekend (laughs) (laughs) so just so people aren't confused um that would be the psychological trick that this whole mandela effect bs is is you make something up the song by the way song by lover boy the song has always been everybody's working for the weekend Okay, no, no joking around no sarcasm anymore i don't even remember (laughs) Everybody's working for the weekend, right? But we were joking around. Anyways, the point being is there's these uh, songs, and you have this kind of programmed, mechanized uh, existence that we all kind of exist in. Um, And uh, people don't tend to take notice. Uh, You know, it's interesting if you go to a shopping mall or in a – an amusement park or um, say a ball game, which I don't have any problem with any of these things. Okay. Um, I do have a problem when people kind of take this on as part of their personality, which we've discussed before. 
And let's say you want to go to any one of these three things, like anybody who's listening to this podcast or myself or Chris, let's say we decide, you know, to go to the mall, we're going to, you know, whatever, you're going to take part in some sort of leisure activity. You're going to the amusement park, the local carnival, uh, the local baseball game, whatever it is, no harm done there. But for you, you are going to be one out of the 500, one out of 500 people in the, in the stands or in the place that is not going to be collectively in the same mindset as the rest of the people. Mm-hmm. So you can go there and enjoy that thing. What is, you can go to the amusement park or whatever you can enjoy it, but you realize that there are people there who have a collective mind that are all engaged in this in this reality that and they're they're believing in this reality that exists uh, and it does exist even though it's a it's a fantasy world but they're all believing in it and if you're there watching it then you're observing it even though you could go there to enjoy a certain aspect of it there's going to be a part of you that to where you can't enjoy it the same way that everybody else is. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, one thing I'm reminded of the last show that I ever went to that where I actually paid to go see it. And it was something that I, I, this came, I came to a realization of this. It's actually one of my all time favorite rock bands, the helicopters. Um, from Sweden? From Sweden, yeah. I went to go see them at the El Rey Theater in Los Angeles, and I remember standing there watching them and saying, like, I'm not into this anymore. My mind is not here anymore. It's... Hmm. <clears throat> I was I was there. I was enjoying the fact that I was able to see the band, but I was not... I didn't have that same mentality that I used to have where... I was mesmerized by the music to the and so in you know enchanted by it. Yeah. Um I had, you know, kind of moved I had kind of matured in my thinking. Now, just on the basis of, of using that word mature, this is gonna lead into a, a much larger uh, discussion as it tends to to do. I have a book here. I would recommend everybody get a copy of it. It is called The Disappearance of Childhood by Neil Postman. Okay. Chapter 7 is The Adult Child. Okay. There is a well-traveled TV commercial for Ivory Soap in which we are shown two women identified as mother and daughter. The viewers are then challenged to guess which is the mother and which is the daughter, both of whom appear to be in their late 20s and more or less interchangeable. I take this commercial to be an uncommonly explicit piece of evidence supporting the view that the difference between adults and children are disappearing. Although many other commercials imply as much, 
This one speaks directly to the point that in our culture it is now considered desirable that a mother should not look older than her daughter, or that a daughter should not look younger than her mother. Whether this means that childhood is disappearing or that adulthood is disappearing is merely a matter of how one wishes to state the problem. Without a clear concept of what it means to be an adult, there can be no clear concept of what it means to be a child. Thus, the idea on which this book is based, that our electric information environment is disappearing, childhood. So what he's saying there, let me, let me clarify that. He said, thus, the idea on which this book is based, that our electric information environment is disappearing childhood, is making childhood disappear, can also be expressed by saying that our electric information environment is disappearing adulthood. As I have taken some pains to show, the modern idea of adulthood is largely a product of the printing press. Almost all of the characteristics we associate with adulthood are those that are and were either generated or amplified by the requirements of a fully literate culture. The capacity for self-restraint, a tolerance for delayed gratification, a sophisticated ability to think conceptually and sequentially, a preoccupation with both historical continuity and the future, a high valuation of reason and hierarchical order. As electric media move literacy to the periphery of culture and take its place at the center, different attitudes and character traits come to be valued as a new diminished definition of adulthood begins to emerge. It is a definition that does not exclude children and therefore what results is the new configuration of these stages of life. In the television age, there are three. At one end, infancy. At the other end, senility. In between, there is what we call the adult child. The adult child may be defined as a grown-up whose intellectual and emotional capacities are unrealized and in particular not significantly different from those associated with children. Such grown-ups have always existed, but, culturals, uh, but cultures vary in the degree to which they encourage or discourage this characterological pattern. In the Middle Ages, the adult child was a normal condition in large measure because in the absence of literacy schools and civility, no, no special discipline or learning was required in order to be an adult. For somewhat similar reasons, the adult child is emerging as a normal in our own culture. I shall reserve for the next chapter putting forward the evidence that this is indeed happening. The purpose of this chapter is to show how and why it is happening. The short answer is implied in what I have been saying, as the symbolic arena in which human growth takes place changes in its form and content, and in particular changes in the direction of requiring no distinction between child and adult sensibilities. Inevitably, the two stages of life merge into one. <clears throat> okay. I'm now I've got I've got a couple of things to to now we've discussed this before. Um 
And I've got a couple of more things to say on that note, but before we move forward, what did you think of Mr. Postman's statement there? Was that something uh, you deemed to be adequate? Oh, yeah, I was uh, just kind of pondering on what he said about the Middle Ages, saying that there were adult children in the Middle Ages because of there, there wasn't any. Uh, what? What is? What? What was he? Uh... Well, th- that's that's where I that's where I tend to. There's always going to be something within the sociologist mm-hmm. who is a what's the term. Well, like Mr. like Mr. Postman, and I've heard his. Uh, I probably watched all of his uh, lectures, um, and you know this book, and then of course uh, amusing ourselves to death. The thing is, is that Neil Postman, he sees the um, he sees the way to to um, what's the word I'm I'm trying to say here. He sees the way to remedy all of this is by, one, getting rid of television, mm-hmm. and that by a more educated public, that that would make a better society. Okay. So if people didn't have the electronic distractions, they could kind of be more focused on reading and literacy and that would make a better society. He seem he seems to feel that that there was a time that existed in America where bef- before the electronic age where people were more informed to a certain extent. I, I tend to disagree. I tend, tend, tend to part ways with him on that particular front there. I'm sure you do as well. Yeah. Um but to a certain extent uh, what what he what he was doing what, what he was doing with a lot of his books is he was critiquing the um, what he was able to gather from people's behavior mm-hmm. which I do think was a, a correct assessment and a correct judgment so to make the comparison to the middle ages like that that there wasn't any he, he said that that adult children existed in the Middle Ages because there was no education and people were not literate. So therefore, the distinction between child and adult, uh, there wasn't really a distinction there. Because of the absence of becoming literate and becoming educated, I wasn't (laughs) really sure what... What he what he was getting at with that statement. That's what I. So that's so that's what he's talking about. It's like somehow uh, by becoming educated or literate, that's some kind of hallmark of being adult. Yeah. The other thing that he talks about in there that I think is a great um, a great statement is. He says, when you've got no distinction between 
the two, then nobody knows what it's what the meaning of being either one is. So once again, his uh, his statement was incorrect when he's talking about the Middle Ages because people in previous time periods they didn't need uh, to be literate to understand what a child was or an adult. In fact, it's the introduction of education that has. And this is the basis of what we're going to have a more broader discussion tonight about. But but it was the introduction of education that kind of uh, created that that gap that never existed. It created the bridges between um, – it created a middleman between child and adult. And there was now a new communication – with this middleman in between that was going to um, uh, kind of relegate the two. Mm -hmm. You see, it was going to distinguish who was going to be, you know, um, it was super, it was kind of superimposed on us. Like there's things that you naturally gain and you naturally know. Uh, when you re- when you reach a certain age, mm-hmm. through the stunted growth process that we've all been through, all of us, there are things that are now delayed. But you but you can't keep the person. It's it's very hard to keep people from having innate desires, right? Right. But you can stunt the growth. So it's like, you know. Someone who's, uh, you know, someone um, like like myself, uh, I'll just, you know, self-deprecate here. Someone like myself, I'm, I was very stunted in growth, uh, becoming an adult. <laughs> and yeah. it was... It was through cultural conditioning, you know. I should, there there was a lot of things I should have done. I, I think collectively speaking, we're all kind of stunted in growth because, um, because the best time to actually get married and have children is when you're in your teens. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I think so. It's when you're more, you have sort of the energy to match children too. If you're around that age, you know, so that like, uh, I don't have any children, but imagine if I did now, it would be like, uh, more difficult mm-hmm. <laughs> being older. That's why I'm there thinking I maybe need a, need some sort of like a harem. That way. <laughs> no. Well, the. The, the the only advantage to having children a little later, but see, this is a product of modern civilization. It's like with myself, um, I'm actually really glad I didn't have children when I was younger in the modern civilization because I wasn't um, of the mindset that I am now, able to kind of sort things out and see things for the way they are. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. But but see, once again, that would be something that would be a product of the mechanized technological society. So 
Yeah, that is true. So there are would be advantages to having children at a later age, definitely. But yeah, in the context of what we're living in, that's right. That's that's exactly right. And so now that I think about it, if I if I did have children when I was in my twenties or in my teens, it would be like, man, yeah, I was making some pretty bad decisions back around that time not really knowing what's going on not not so much just just general kind of just stuff that you 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 don't really have any uh knowledge going into it and you get into it and it's like man wow you look back on it and say well you know could have did things differently uh because you just don't know yeah Yeah. well yeah and like i was saying that's a that's a product of purposely stunted growth through the quote-unquote education process. So, you know, I think Mr. Post may have to define his terms. He was a college professor, so he does believe in the, like I said, he does believe in education. Um, I would tend to think uh, to be objective and to give him the benefit of the doubt because I don't dislike Neil Postman. I I do, generally speaking, I do like all the stuff that he says. Yeah, I've listened to a lot of his. Uh, there's a lot of stuff online with him in interviews and all that. An interesting thing too, as an aside, it uh, it, it seemed like there would be like uh, <coughs> longer interviews. Like he, I think he, he was kind of so he was at his. Uh, <coughs> oh, excuse me. <coughs> I got some in my throat. But um, mm-hmm. around the seventies, uh, eighties, early eighties, yeah, early eighties. Yeah, it seemed like there was there was more as it seems like as as things progress along. There's, um, well, that's kind of, that's kind of a different issue. But how how media has gotten into like where you'll have some some. I think there's like processes that are kind of reversing that, like with podcasts and all that, where you can get into a subject and you can kind of explore it a bit, but. Uh, like a television used to be more kind of along that lines where, Oh, we can go into a subject and we can explore it for like an hour and a half. And then it would be like an hour and a half of them talking, you know, Neil Postman or somebody. But I think that television has moved away from that, which was kind of ironic because that's the very thing he was talk the kind of stuff he was talking about. Yeah. He was the first person I ever heard, um, long time ago. Before I even knew anything about him, like I didn't, I didn't even really know that much about him at all. I just remember um, getting that book, uh, Amusing Ourselves to Death, and he talks about that. Um, uh, and we've discussed this many times before about having an advertisement in the middle of some sort of like horrific news. Right. Yeah, he was he was the first guy I ever heard kind of point that out where he's all you're watching something on the news. It's a very serious piece of information. And then they cut to a commercial and it's, you know, a commercial for deodorant. There's, you know, people happily running through a field of daisies or something. Right. Or like a talking teddy bear selling you toilet paper. Yeah. Like you just saw. Yeah. Like a oh, 37 car pile up for, you know. 14 people dead <laughs> and then just like bam yeah. just whip whip snap you into a yeah you know, some kind of commercial that's like silly you know like it's, which it's, yeah 
which in and of itself is a retardation process. This is a retarding of the human mind. Of and and so, um. So yeah, like I was saying, he he's a true believer in the education process, but. I think you'd have to define your terms as to actually what education is and and when it's necessary as far as um, you know I mean just if you think just by the fact of um, you know well here I'll, I'll explain it right here I, I've actually got the quote this leads perfectly into this quote from the Technological Society by Jacques Ellul. A great, another great book everybody needs to uh, purchase, by the way. And this book is one of those books, um, like many books we've talked about before, where you just open a page and it's going to send you spinning off into a, a wonderland of thought. Yeah, I was. I had a copy of that. I need to get a hold of another copy, but uh, yeah, I w- I started reading that, and I would just pick up and start. I I have a tendency to do that where, like, if I get a book initially, I kind of I'll, I'll go like in the middle of it or toward the end and read a chapter out of it. Mm-hmm. And yeah. Uh, yeah, I was I, I was getting really drawn into that book because yeah, like you're saying, there's like a, a lot of insights in it, and uh, but then. I got I I had a flood it, in my it, uh, apartment and it, and it uh, ruined a bunch of books I had sitting on the floor. But, uh, uh, darn it! Yeah, yeah. So on page three forty-seven of the Technological Society, he says the education of the child is not directed toward some merely abstract social end. Um, concretely, the child must develop a social conscience, understand that the meaning of life, the good of humanity, and the grasp needed uh, for an entente amongst all nations. These ideas are much less vague than one might think. The good of humanity, for example, is not the obscure notion Uh, The philosophers pretended it to be. At most, it varies somewhat with the political regime. And even this vulnerability is becoming less and less pronounced. Compare Life magazine with the Soviet news and the identical terms in the United States and the Soviet Union. The difference lies mainly in the persons charged with securing it. In both cases, the social good can be reduced to a few concrete and precise factors. The corresponding educational technique as a consequence takes a completely determinate direction. Social conformism must be impressed upon the child. He must be adapted to his society. He must not impair its development. His his integration into the body social must be assured with the least possible friction. This technique of alleged liberation of the child cannot be oriented differently 
even if it were so desired. The technique permits the broadening of the child, the development of his social personality and happiness, and consequently his equilibrium. Opposition to society, the lack of social adaptation, produces serious personality difficulties which lead to the loss of psychic equilibrium. One of the most important factors in the child's education, therefore, is social adaptation. This means, this is the best part, this means that despite all the pretentious talk about the aims of education, it is not the child in and for himself who is being educated, but the child in and for society. Okay. The child in and for society. <clears throat> what does that mean? Yes. It means that you don't send your kids to school for the benefit of the children. You send your kids to school to adapt them to society. Yes. It's not for the benefit of the child. It's for the benefit of society as a whole that he adapts and has the social conditioning that everybody else has. I've had conversations with people too where um, – so the subject will come up like they just had a child, like a couple, and it's um, – uh, oh, yeah, or, you know, so what do you know? What do you think about homeschooling and, and all that? And it's kind of like, well, you know, we've decided that, you know, we need to send our children to like public school. It's like, really? You know, so what's, what's the idea there? It's like, well, you know, they need to get socialized. And they use the word socialized, like socialized. Like you need, you need to get, they need to, get, they need mm-hmm. to be socialized, which yeah, it, makes people sense. People still use that word. It totally makes sense. I mean, like it, if you're socialized, so to speak, you are going to be able to better navigate the working world and all that. You have to get in, but you have to get through the the you know the regimentation and everything of the the public school system and also the um, enculturation you know getting getting into what uh, other what the kids are into and 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 the pop culture that they're into and the memes and all this other stuff that's part of the socialization process which now was a lot different than when I was going to public school but um yeah, you get introduced to a lot of things, and like, uh, you know, one of one of the things is like, um, you, you just you know, everything from to what what you're gonna wear as far as your clothing preferences to what kind of uh, foods you're gonna uh, consume down the road, and a lot of different things that you will not get exposed to necessarily outside of the uh, public school process. Yes, that is true. And you see, the point we're going to be getting into here as we make our way through some of this stuff is this is a conditioning process that moves the bar lower for the adult and lower for the child to where like Mr. Postman was talking about there, you 
you don't know the difference between the two of them. And you see, like I was saying, he has this idea of what education kind of should be and that's going to make it a more informed public and all that type of stuff. But it's but as Jacques Alol just countered that and said, Look, you send you send your kids to school because you want them to be social con, socially conditioned. Well, if the overall goal through electronic media, through technological society, as Neil Postman pointed out, is making people less adult-like, less responsible, and those same technologies are being incorporated into schools and being incorporated into children's lives uh, by, you know, parents letting their children play with iPads and, you know, all that type of stuff. You see, here, here's, and, and like I said, there's a broader scope to this conversation here at the end. But see, here's the thing. There's not really much we can do about about children, you know, seeing television or, or you know, hearing this or wanting, you know, this, you know, wanting this sort of thing. It's, but it's the, you know, um, it's the framing of the culture in which they're able to um, adapt to it. I've given the example before. It's, all, you know, my children have heard music from different time periods, but they have no culture they have no modern culture to adapt that music to because they don't watch television and they're not involved in that type of thing. Even so much so that, you know, even if we go to a store and my daughter or son sees a toy that, the, you know, and let's say it's a Disney toy or something like that, they don't know what it is. It might look funny or cool or, you know, whatever, and they might think it's, you know, Hey, look at that! It's a cool toy, but they have no idea what that what that uh, cultural significance is for that toy. They have no context to put it in in the same way that a what a television watcher would have the all the associations, and then it's like the commercial comes on, and the kids are like, "Hey, you got so- uh, what is it? Sockem Rockem Sockem robots." I'm just I'm just thinking of like <laughs> commercials when I was a kid, and sure. I remember uh, I remember as a kid I was thinking that's kind of dumb. That's all it does, you know. It's like it's like I don't, I don't know. I never <laughs> was that excited about that toy. There was some that I was. I was like, oh shit, that I gotta have that. But I yeah. but like you know, but you're you're seeing it on television for one thing, so that's that's telling you that it's something, you know. And then and then you're and then the, and then you have to absorb the children's reaction to it. You're seeing on television, you identify with them. You want to have the fun. You want to have the toy, you know, you're, um, interesting. Like how, how does your children react to toys? Like when they see them, like at, when you're out shopping at target or something, like, what do they, what do they do? Are they just kind of indifferent towards most toys or, no, not at all. Just kind of curious, just kind of checking they, them they, out, but not really. They, they like they like them. They want to see them. There's something 
about toys, whatever it is, oh, that, yeah, you yeah. know, where, where a child knows what a toy is. Um, I mean, I'm sitting in a room full of toys right now. Um, mostly dolls. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and like I said, there's, you know, um, if we if we go somewhere, um, and you know we do have some we do have some stuff over, you know what is that over there? We do you know we have some kind of random things. Like we, I mean, we don't go to the you know to the big box store and buy a whole bunch of stuff or anything like that, and really never at all. My wife makes a lot of my uh, daughter's dolls. Oh yeah, yeah. She's um, crap, crafty yeah. lady. Yeah, but I mean, like we do have some, you know, people buy store bought stuffed animals or whatever, and yeah, we have some. But they, but like I was saying, there's no context to be able to put that in. You need the corresponding culture. And the example that I've given before, it's like my daughter can hear a Beatles song. Mm-hmm. But she doesn't have the culture to even know what it is other than it's just some song, you know. Now, did you pressure your daughter into liking dolls or did you were were you all suggestive to her that she play with dolls or did she kind of naturally grab because so we remember too like uh, as far as like not not seeing any television so she's not getting genderfied through the tv Uh, maybe through her playmates at at at, uh you know different uh social context and stuff well i'll tell i'll tell you one thing that i remember from being a kid and i see it in both my children is they both like to play with dolls but it's it's kind of funny is like it's funny the way my my son reacts to like a a a girl doll Mm -hmm. he like starts to blush a little bit like he'll pick it up and (laughs) (laughs) how old is he again he's only like like one he's he's he, yeah he's easy he's, he's young he's infant really young st- infant stage mm, not not totally infant no a L- little bit older but yeah he was um he uh yeah he'll he'll get around to like see one of my um my daughter's dolls laying on the floor and he'll kind of pick it up and kind of start smiling to himself like <laughs> <laughs> That's pretty funny, like, and then uh, you know. But you don't have to, uh, you know, do anything special to get your daughter interested in dolls and playing mm-hmm. house and stuff. No. Now that's no. what you'll be told. Now is that that's all social construct at work. Oh, uh, we know that's all a load of horse pucky. You know, it's just, I mean, social conditioning creates creates the normals for society, at least the ones that society believes in. So it's not, um, it's like you have your natural state, um, whatever, whatever that is, okay? 
So I'm not even ruling out the fact that somebody uh, could have some sort of uh, um, some sort of uh, deficiency of something where they might be born with a a, um, a a man. He might be born with some sort of a affinity for the men. Okay. I'm not ruling that out as being a possibility, but it's not a normal thing. So that's the point I want to get across is that is a, an abnormality. It's not, it's not a normality. It's normal to be male and to have a female partner, but it's, you know, like I said, whether that's your thing or not, that's an abnormality. Okay. Mm-hmm. If you want to, if you want to engage in that behavior, it's none of my business. But that's it's abnormal. It's not normal. I'm not going to come over and say, "Hey, that's normal." When it's not, you can see by your physiology that it's not normal. Okay. So right. just taking, so just taking it on that, just taking it on the physical aspect, it's abnormal. Okay. Now, now society plays a big role in the superimposition of how you are going to act in accordance with with whatever it is that's being dished out to you, instead of acting on your own um, innate senses. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, let me give you let me give you another example. On on that front, using the the gay thing as an example, do you know that there is that Disney has successfully marketed itself to the gay community to where there is a big consumer. Uh, Porsche, there's a big portion of consumers of Disney products that are gay. The products are gay. Like, and what, so how does that? No, no, no. I'm not saying the products are gay. I'm saying that what they have done is they have, they have reconfigured, they have configured themselves, positioned themselves in a, in a way to be able to market themselves to that particular uh, uh, part of society. Was it a not-so-Freemason that was sending those images Mm -hmm. from Florida that they had after the uh, alleged Orlando shooting? There was all kinds of uh, Disney-produced gay uh, paraphernalia smattered yes. all over town yes and and this and, and you know and yeah that that's a good example but most but the, the the thing i'm 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 focusing on here is is product marketing to where like big consumers of disney products of you know attire of dolls of you know whatever it is you know um, movies and all that type of stuff. 
there's lots of gay people who are into Disney. Okay, so Disney has successfully marketed itself in whatever way has has marketed itself to that part of society and made massive profits off of that particular niche. Okay. Mm-hmm. Right. And and um, <laughs> it's just a funny, it's just funny thing about because when when you see people like kind of immerse their hey John, whatever you did, yeah, what it, it sounded like you shifted locations or something, but your audio just right after I heard you. Whatever happened there, it just your audio's clipping out and breaking up now. Is it okay now? Yeah, sounds like it. It's better. Yeah, it sounds good. Okay, so so in any in any case, corporations, no matter what what they're you know, and especially with with you know. Disney. If anybody wants to read an interesting book on Disney, a sociology book on Disney, there's a book called The Mouse That Roared. And that is the only book I've ever seen in a sociological setting that has the word culture creation in it. Oh, okay. So it's the only book that I know of that has the word culture creation in a sociology book. And it actually talks about Disney being involved in culture creation. I would say that they're now they own <laughs> Time Warner. They bought out Time Warner, and they bought out they own ABC. They were like a they're like a mega giant, a media mega giant. So when you say Disney, it you're talking basically most of the media that's out there. Disney is the new world order. It is. It is the new world order. Yeah, it's it's <laughs> it's insane, dude. How big Disney is, like how how huge it is. And uh, yeah, I don't, dude. I never liked Disney, even when I was a kid. I didn't. I mean, I went to Disneyland because I lived in California. My parents took me there. I did enjoy it. I thought that that was the the thing that. Was um, I like the the Pirates of the Caribbean thing, and then the and then the submarine thing. I thought that was the you know coolest shit ever, and all that. But I don't. I, it's like there are people I've known people that like um, are seriously into Disney. Like it, it's like a it's it's like a cult like thing. Have, have you ever met anybody that's like and they're and they're wearing. Uh, there's one couple that went to church I used to go to, and uh, they were always had some kind of Disney attire on, or and they were just Disneyed out to the hilt. And it was like, yeah, uh, we, there's a lot of, yeah, lot we, of people. T- are we like touched this. on we touched on this in the the Southern California talks. Um, I brought up Disneyland and told, and I was talking about how. Um, how there's that kind of people there's like a whole generation that's probably beginning with mine probably beginning with generation x where 
it's, you know, you kind of grow up immersed in that culture and then the next generation kind of grows up immersed in the culture and it's kind of passed down uh, from generation to generation. And you have like these, you know, you have adults who are, you know, completely Disney files and Disney files. Yeah, there you go. Yeah, they're just, yeah, it's, it's, it gets to be kind of bizarre. And that's kind of what I was saying earlier with like, you know, you could go to a place like that and kind of observe people's behavior and kind of be on the outside and, and just, you know, really see kind of what kind of bizarre world we kind of live in where, you know, or, or a sporting event, a sporting event, you know, same kind of thing. It's like, yeah, you can go to those places and enjoy yourself for what it is, but then observe people's behavior around you and then realize that those people are childlike in their approach to life. And, you know, it's, it's, you know, we've talked about this many times and, and like I said, we'll move the conversation forward to get into the kind of, kind of big scope of what we're going to talk about here. But the the difference, you know, it's like there's kind of this philosophical uh, ping pong between like, well, you know, oh, well, you, you know, you're talking about this, but well, that you, you, you're talking about civilization. Oh, what, you don't like uh, running water? <laughs> <laughs> you, you know, if you, if you if you're kind of like you know, be trying to be objective, just trying to look at something, and it's like, you know, okay, there's obvious. We grew up in this culture. There's nothing we can do about the culture. We we didn't have a say in it. We grew up in it. There's things we like. You know what I there's say to th- that, um, dude? If your water's running, why don't you go catch it? There you go. Well, I, um, not to interrupt, but uh, no, go ahead. I. About the Disney files that I was saying that I knew, like uh, went to church with, um, it was a preacher's daughter and her husband. So it was it, something that occurred to me as we're talking here. It's like, okay, Disney is culture creation, and and now they've you know gone gay and all that, and and it's and it's. Um, it, it, you know, people have pointed this out how how Disney like it, it even. You know, pre all the incorporation of the sort of overt gay stuff in the modern day, you know, there there is a lot of like messages you can look at, and and if you're kind of breaking down the uh, sort of psychology and Disney films and stuff like that, and saying this is not healthy stuff for kids, um, and it's very innocuous appearing. No. But, uh, but so the point is that what I was bringing about the, the preacher's daughter, it's like you, you – in our – okay, in our society, in our culture, you, you, there's no angle of approach to come to someone and say, yeah, Disney is maybe not so great. Like you it, – it's, it's kind of unassailable because of its cutesiness and its – and, and the content and it's for kids and it's just it's entertainment it's great everybody loves Disneyland it's wonderful and if and if you come out up against it you're like uh, you, you can't do it people are gonna like 
Yeah, be, it's kind of hard, especially with well, you the, know what I'm getting at. I, I do. You know, it's 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 hard to kind of point that out. You know, I mean, a lot of the the thing is is Disney is really uh, one thing they were good at is taking old archetypal stories and turning them into modern day cartoons for the adult children. Right. Yeah. 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 I mean, most of the stories aren't even Disney. I mean, Pinocchio is not Disney. The jungle book's not Disney. Uh, Sleeping Beauty, Sleeping Beauty, Cinderella, uh, whatever else uh, is there is, um, is there something I'm missing? The you know, like the original stories, they're all kind of, or you know, I mean, even what the one of the more recent ones, I guess, would be uh, Aladdin, or even the Little Mer- even the Little Mermaid. That's a that's an old story. That's like a Swedish tra- fairy tale or something like that. But um, yeah, like old folk tales and fairy stories and stuff like that. Yes, yeah, so, so re- they yeah reworked. Yeah. They're reworked to fit the culture. They're reworked to, you know, have messaging in them for the different time periods. Um, They're reworked to, you know, reinforce uh, all the stuff that we've talked about. Um, um, You know, certain things are probably... There's always something kind of added to them. I think this has been pointed out before... um, uh, who's who talks about that? Uh, what, what, um, Jamie Hanshaw. She talked about the princess programming and the, you know, like the mother dying and all the films and yeah, yeah. That's why I was thinking tra- about that. Yeah, the trauma, the trauma. You know, the trauma associated with it. It, you know, those type of things are are things that are. Um, yeah, it's not not good for. Like trauma-based, mind-control type stuff. And and that sounds like a strong term to put on, you know, Disney films. But in a way, yeah, definitely when, um, yeah, uh, uh, Jamie and uh, Freeman used to talk about this stuff a lot. And and, uh, the, um, yeah, the messages and the sort of psychology and stuff that's being put across. And... um, and, and we're talking about we got to keep in mind too that young impressionable minds that brains and personalities that are being formed this is what they consume and um, and somebody might say yeah I take my child to a Disney movie once in a while I don't I'm not saying that that's something terrible or you commit some crime or anything like that but on the, there's there's this other component too that like yeah you know you're you know, like our average person out there is, you know, they're going to like it's, you know, the general moderation. And it's like, yeah, occasional film and stuff like that. But there there is a lot of people that have this, uh, you know, approach to pairing. I know people I'm not going to name names, but like their their children have seen hours upon hours upon hours upon hours of DVDs of Disney stuff. And they'll see the same movie. And, and kids like to do this. Like they'll watch the same movie over and over and over and over and over, like hundred hundreds, maybe not hundreds, I don't know, but mi- uh, many dozens of times. 
that that's something too. So if if you're gonna say if you're gonna talk about something that has tremendous influence in our culture, what what could have more influence than that? And when's the last time you heard a sermon preached in a church against Disney? I never. I've never heard of such a thing. Mm, yes, I'm sure there yeah. is, but I, I take that back. Yeah, there's, sure. there's, still, you know, I mean, like I said, if the children don't have the culture to back something up against it, you know, it's like, it's like, like I'm, like I'm saying, some of those, some of those stories, those archetypes, and all that type of stuff. That I mean, you need to read, you need to, uh, you can read your, you know. Uh, you know that I have books laying around the house with fairy tales and you know stuff like that. That's kind of things. Um, like I said, there's archetypal stuff in there that children like the stories. I like the stories. I mean, I admit it too. I like old folk tales and that type of stuff. Oh yeah. Um, the you know, and there's you know, kind of uh. Just uh, what's the word I'm looking for? I guess archetypal lessons that that are in some of them, as well. Some of them are actually kind of funny, um, like the three wishes ones. The 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 there's one I didn't even know this existed until I was reading it like uh, maybe about a month ago. That this three wishes book, this lady. They've got the three wishes, and they they use the three wishes unwisely, and the lady's nose turns into a sausage, and the husband has to use the last wish to get his wife's nose back to being normal from a sausage. What's this, what's this you're watching, John? Where where are you getting this from? Or just <laughs> Disney? Uh, no, it's not. It's not Disney. Think of something. Yeah, something. Oh, like an old. <laughs> yeah, yeah, like. Uh, um, and that's the thing too. It's like, oh, so you're gonna say like Disney's uh, brainwashing kids? Like, yes, absolutely. You know, it's like, but it, it's not gonna be uh, so direct that you're gonna be able to watch it and 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 be able to point things out specifically. Um, I, I think Jamie and Freeman did a real good job. I, I recommend people um, go find uh, that that's, that analysis of uh, Disney stuff and check it out. Uh, the Princess programming and all that stuff. That that's definitely um, being worked into this so-called entertainment because it's too there, there's there's too many of these reoccurring themes. Because, like you're talking about these old uh, folk tales and stuff like that, like, do all old folk tales have like the absent mother, like the mother dies? And there's and there's just so many examples in Disney films where it's like the the absent mother. Like, what? Why? Like, what is like every like? Yeah, there's just so many of them. Like, you gotta you gotta wonder. Like, okay, something's going on here. That's. Uh, you know, some sort of uh, social engineering mm-hmm. or conditioning that's being yeah. being worked in these things. It, it, um, yeah, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Like, got it. Said well, home, but I went done. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, we put you put you posted this today. I sent it to you. 
to quote from Theodore Rozak's uh, essay, uh, Youth and the Great Refusal. And it, it says, it is not properly youth's role to bear so great a responsibility for inventing or initiating for their society as a whole. It is too big a job for them to do so gracefully. The rise of our youth culture to a position of such prominence is a symptom of grave default on the part of adults. Trapped in a frozen posture of befuddled passivity, which has been characteristic of our society since the end of World War II, the mature generations have divested themselves of their adulthood. If the term means anything besides being tall and debt-worried and capable of buying liquor without showing a driver's license. Mm. So, yes, to a certain extent, that's true. Now, overall, I would say, generally speaking, people were conditioned in that fashion. Here's a quote um, from Lewis Mumford in The Myth of the Machine Volume 2, The Pentagon of Power. And he says, um, he says, what is true for human habitats and human cultures holds equally for man's historic affiliations, just as no single region or culture can possibly offer fulfillment of all potentialities for human development, so no single generation can embody these potentialities. And in fact, no generation before our own has ever been so fatuous as to imagine it's possible to live exclusively exclusively within its own narrow time band, guided only by information recently discovered. Nor has it ever before. Uh, nor has it ever before this accepted as final and absolute the demands of the present generation alone without relating those demands to past experience or future projects and ideal possibilities. Uh, The shibboleths of the now generation do not apply even to animal existence, for all higher organisms provide for their future by mating and nurturing their young, and some even anticipate future needs by storing food. For the sake of continuity and cultural accumulation, Previous cultures have usually overvalued custom and tradition and have even preserved their errors, lest in extirpating them they forfeit their achievements. But the notion that the past, instead of being respected, must be liquidated is a peculiar mark of the, meg- of the megatechnic power system. On this matter, the anthropologist Raglan has spoken sobering words. He said... It is often assumed that decay is due to the dead hand of conservatism, and it is, of course, the fact that religious or political theories which involve a belief in the infallibility of the ancients must often lead to decay. It is less often realized, on the other hand, that decay of a culture can be brought about even more rapidly by breaking away and forgetting the past. Mm. So, uh, yeah, that's a that's an interesting uh, quote there with the idea. I think that's that's uh, pretty pertinent. So conservatism so, being 
being associated with decay or decline. What actually would be as far as far as uh, well, depending specifically what you're talking about, but as far as like they actually is is a reverse being true. Well, it's the you know just for someone listening to this who doesn't understand the actual. A dictionary definition of conservatism or liberal, not in the political sense, right? Just right, in, yeah. just in, in the objective use of the word conservatism, or you know, would be something like uh, kind of preserving con- to conserve, right? Right. right. Um, liberal would mean to use to <laughs> to you know. Instead of conserving, you use it. Right. So, um, so yeah, that, that's what he's saying there about culture is, is you know, it's often thought, and, and the he makes a good point there, is that it, it got kind of wordy, but the point he was making was that there were certain cultures who went out of their way to preserve their cultures, even so far as to reject advancements in their uh, potential growth or, you know, um, advancements in their uh, technical capability just to preserve their tradition, right? And one of the reasons this exists is because um, what he was talking about is writing this in the... 60s or early 70s he's talking about the now generation and in, specifically in America the the idea of now and I, I was listening to something recently with Hans Utter who's been a guest on uh, Afternoon Commute before and he was talking about this and um, he, he made a great point that there is no um There is, there's no value in now, because now implies uh, the current moment. There's no future. There is no past. So speaking, you know, if I tell you to do something, you know, if you're my child and I tell you to do something right now, that only works for the moment, right? But to imply that now has some sort of philosophy behind it is is uh, incorrect. You see, because now has already passed. Just now. So, just now. So, to to rally people behind a cry of now is to destroy the past and to, in turn, destroy the future. And one way one way of doing that is to create the the adult child, who only believes in the now, who doesn't have the. Uh, capability to uh, differentiate between that by being an adult only thinking in the now um, an adult thinks about the future and okay here's something too that's come up uh, this prompted me to 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 put put this uh, sort of current current events in this context I was uh, conversing with uh, David, uh, listener, on email back and forth, 
and so he said, "Well, I um, no, excuse me, this uh, wrong guy, uh, Russ. He's a uh, he, he he does construction, and he's saying, oh, they renovated this church within a week, you know, where they turned this church into a memorial the, with this recent uh, sh- uh, alleged shooting in Texas, and uh, I, I found this other article." Coincidentally enough, when you brought up that uh, the Oath Keepers founder, and I looked up his name, and it took me to the site. They had an article about that church, and in that article, it said they did this in two days. I'm like, oh, okay, this is crap. Because like Russ was saying, as I work in construction, I know that's not even feasible, especially with volunteers, to do something like that in that short a period of time. But my, you know, my response to him was. Uh, something that I brought up before is that when we're served up these uh, these psychological operations or whatever you want to call them, these 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 uh, this bit of theater that's on television that's presented as real, it's it, it's got to be served up to us in the same sort of format that you're going to be already conditioned through watching hours upon hours of movies and television where if you're watching a television program the uh the the events take place and they have all these different uh uh tropes and stuff to move the timeline along so that you know you can you know cover a certain period of time you know within two hours of course you know and there's uh, d- different, uh, you know, methods to do it. But see, we're we're sort of used to taking things in that way through this conditioning of of you know being subject to that since we're children, you know. So when we're presented with a, an alleged real event, it can be served up to us that way, where it's like, oh, look, the here's you know, and it's like, and, and people don't even probably stop to think that, hey, this is not even a week later. How does that done that quick? It doesn't, it's not relevant. It's not going to be relevant because people are already, already so preconditioned to take things in. And that's why, you know, like we've talked about this, of course, before, where it's like, um, I just posted up that one about that uh, gal in the Vegas shooting that's like walking around and it's like, okay, this is within, you know, weeks of the shooting and she's got shot in the head. She's in a coma, but she's out of it. And she's walking around and I wouldn't be surprised if she's on uh, Ellen in a couple of weeks. I don't know. Wouldn't surprise me at all. But see, it's, it's the point being, it's that that is, I think a big aspect of the stuff we're talking about now with the, uh, with the arrested development trapped in the childhood state of like where uh you know the 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 past or the future is always constantly we're always constantly on this uh roller coaster of events coming at us like in rapid fire succession and um we we just accept we accept it and that you know and you and you would think like well doesn't doesn't see they're trying to trick people into making these events real don't they have to kind of take more care into like not having somebody come on television that's like saying well i forgive the shooter and all that so they're in the fifth stage of grief acceptance but hey wait a minute this is four days after the uh so-called event doesn't make any sense in reality it really doesn't and that's not stuff we've been trying to point out but it's like it makes total sense within this artificial construct 
that everybody sort of takes for granted and they don't stop to really critically analyze anything because they're, they're in this state of arrested development where, where it's like um, – it, and another thing that goes along with it too is like you have specialized fields. You have – and I think that this is a big part of providing all this entertainment and stuff for children is so it keeps them from going out and in, engaging in the physical world like children used to do where you learn about how things work. So there's not if, – if you're familiar with like, um, oh, you played around firecrackers or something as a kid, you understand how things work. They're, they're not going to get – people that are kind of more aware are less likely to be suckered into something like the uh, Oklahoma City bombing where it's like, okay, you know enough about explosives by playing with stuff that that truck didn't do that damage. But see, that's – you can't get that over on a – society of people that are familiar with the real three-dimensional world of nature and reality and uh, how real physics works. But you can definitely get it over on people who have a low degree of familiarity with it and the high degree of conditioning to acquiesce to uh, perceived authority. And that's why I think that this is important to understand, like, as far as this realization that all of us, I mean, myself included, are, uh, you know, if we've grown up in this culture and we've grown up in this public school system and stuff like that, we are in a state of arrested development, adolescence. We don't really go into full adulthood. Yeah, it's very hard to, um, especially, you know, yeah, you made you made some great points there. I think, you know, earlier uh, on the forum over at a Fakeologist Discord, uh, a listener was asking me, you know, what would be the point of something like um, like a death culture, like mass media death culture fascination, and kind of he said something like Suicide Squad. I'm not really familiar with what Suicide Squad is. Um, but as far as I know, just from what I could gather, it's kind of like, um, like, like sexy girls kind of dressed up, like kind of, uh, having something after just basically like sexy girls who are like painted up to look ugly in a weird way. Um, yeah, there's, uh, the... Blonde chick with the hot pants and like a baseball bat with nails in it. That's the imagery that's associated with it. Okay, and, so it's uh, like yeah, it's like tough, like like tough chicks like who kick butt and they're hot, but but they're like they've got the um they've got kind of this uglification thing going on with it. And and the thing I said I I told uh, the listener I said um. You see, when you, when you mix uh, sex and death, the brain goes into an alpha state. It goes into a, and, and the alpha state is right is the stage right before sleep. Sleep. Mm. It shifts you into that alpha state. Um, now 
that's an interesting thing to think about in light of what we've been talking about, the uh, mixing of dream and reality, the dream state and reality that that we uh, inhabit now through the filter of mass media. Yeah, that's what we're in. So everywhere we turn is sex and death blended together. Death is sexy, right? You know, skulls are sexy. There's like there's a sexiness, uh, kind of a marketing sexiness attached to death culture. Yeah. Um. There. You know. There's all. You know. This has been around for in, in a mild form for quite a while. Um. But I'd say since Generation X, it's gone up full scale to where, you know, now there's all sorts of kind of uh, bizarre incarnations of this type of stuff of, uh, you know, all sorts of movies and, uh, you know, sadomasochistic, you know, uh, type stuff. The brain goes into... The brain doesn't know how to deal with that. The brain sees those two things as separate. Those things shouldn't be associated with each other. And even and they're both kind of base, you know, kind of, um, for lack of a better term, even though I don't believe in this concept, they're kind of caveman type, you know, stuff. That's the best way to describe it. It's like yeah. sex sex and death. It's, it's base light, you know, basic things of life type stuff. So it's real just base programming. But you see, once again, you have this kind of these two natural things that go through the filter of the media and the media redefines how you're supposed to view those things. And the new, the new way to view those things is to always view those things together. So it'd be, you know, like, um, you're watching a movie and the hero just uh, nails the hot chick in a sex scene and then he goes out and kills 30 guys in a bloodbath. Yeah. I think uh, instead of caveman or base uh, kind of – I think the, the more – I think why – what uh, we're dealing with on from from this angle here is that it's – consequential like death and sex are are so are 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 things that are part of the human experience that are have the most potential or consequence so they're so they're going to have the tendency to have the more visceral nature to them and a more um uh, to to engage people or to uh yeah, I reject this whole notion of like, oh, it's these are um, well, in a sense, yeah, it's sort of an animalistic or, or base level uh, stuff in its in one respect, but in 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 the whole being a mortal and being a human being, I think the 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 thing is that these are consequential things. You know, so they they have yeah right. So they have more. I, I agree. You 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 said it much more eloquently than I did. I was trying not to use the word caveman, but I think like people will get that kind of a little better, even though I don't believe in that concept. What um I the the thing is, you were seeing it. I should have said it better. Is sex equals life, 
mm-hmm. but not but not in our system. You see, it right. used to. Sex equals life because that's where life comes from, and then there's death. So you're combining life with death. It's kind of a merging of the du- of the dualities within the system, even though I don't believe in dualities either. But this is the way kind of have to explain things to people who um, won't get the concepts in it. Um, there is no duality. They're only complementary. So obviously you're going to die. Mm-hmm. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a fact you will die. And sex equals life, which brings about death. It's just, you know, it's normal human function. Once again, being shot through the mass media filter to reinterpret what those things are supposed to be and how you're supposed to view those things and how you're supposed to um, incorporate your your beliefs about those particular things into uh, your own sphere of uh, thought. Right. Right. They're going to um, – you bring up the alpha brain state. So we saw that on 9-11 with the initial shock of the event. And then you're wondering like, oh, well, why did they announce the culprit like within 45 minutes? Doesn't that seem like a little bit too obvious? And because there's been a lot of people that have subsequently pointed that out. Oh, they knew. uh, So they didn't know it was coming, but they knew right away who did it. But it's like, no, it it really the whole thing makes a lot of sense from the idea that you're you're watching theater that's presented as real. It's like you when you have to insert the concept when they're when people are consuming this. Uh, or taking this in, and they're at the they're at the height of that state, so that you're going to take in the information as presented, and it's going to imprint on your brain because you've witnessed this mass murder of three thousand people right in front of your face. And initially, Absolutely. do you remember they were saying fifty thousand people? And I remember hearing that, and I was like, oh, my, what the hell? 50,000 people, you know, like 50,000 people. That's what they were initially saying. 50,000 people work in these buildings. And you're thinking, wow, I just watched 50,000 people just boom, die. Like a whole city of people, bam, dead right there. Yeah. And that's how that's uh, – but the point being is that, okay, death, the finality of death and the human experience is like, bam – and then once you're going through dealing with that, like that, that trauma, seeing witnessing this event, and of course it's it's in the video drone, they they start giving you the the narrative that's going to carry you down this trail that that's already been laid out to go down. But that they have to do it. It has to. That's why back to like what I was saying before about these shooting events and stuff like that. It has to be the people have to come on and talk about it that just had their loved one, you know, brutally mass murdered. That's that's a necess- necessary component of these things because it it for one thing we're in a state of arrested development. We have this you know attention span of like a sand flea, you know. So we it, it has to be served up to us in rapid succession before it's before it's no longer relevant. Like nobody's talking about 
from what I understand, I don't watch the news or have television, but nobody's talking about Las Vegas anymore. It's done. It's like, when was it? Last month? It's done. All of them were. Yeah, it's past. Just all past, you know? Past is prologue, apparently, because every time you turn around, it's a new one. That's right. It's now. Um... So here's an interesting thing I just found um, in this book, Stift, The Betrayal of the American Man by Susan Faludi, um, who actually was pretty famous for writing a feminist book, but I guess she kind of caught on to the idea that both sexes were being screwed over in the modern culture. And um, this is an interesting shift here. And we've kind of talked about this, you know, I brought this up many times, but the last chapter of Tragedy and Hope kind of goes over the weaponization of culture against the American family. And we've talked about that before. Um And this is talking about the particular generation um, that that would be like my parents' age, uh, guys, my, you know, someone like my dad who, who didn't go into uh, the military, um, but a lot of people my dad's age did, and they went to Vietnam. Um, yeah, my dad went to Vietnam. Your dad went to Vietnam? Yeah. Okay, yeah. Yeah, so um, so this is something I did not know, but it has uh, some it has a correlation uh, to what we're talking about here. And it's talking about the My Lai massacre. Now, obviously, I wasn't there. I don't know what exactly went down in this particular thing, but the My Lai massacre is the way it's told is that these American soldiers went in and massacred a whole bunch of villagers in Vietnam and killed women and children and did a whole bunch of bad stuff. Um, I don't tend to doubt that that stuff goes on in war, um, even though uh, in this book, once again, I have another book confirming that most of the uh, casualties of war when it comes to uh, soldiers in particular it says it right here in this book, as it says in so many others, most of the casualties come from uh, friendly fire, accidents, and um, like uh, like injuries and not being able to treat injuries. <laughs> most of the casualties of war? Yeah. Yeah, uh, in, the, in the Vietnam War, the, the the majority of casualties were from friendly fire, injuries, and accidents. You know, um, like you know, maybe somebody f- fell off a cliff or something like that. I don't know, but a lot of uh, drug was, overdoses and yeah, that, probably that even like a lot that. of food poisoning and shit. You know, just stuff. You know, you're getting infections and stuff over there, just kind of being in mm-hmm. an unfamiliar environment. Yeah, and, and, you know, um, obviously that was, like I said, it's talking about the soldiers. 
I do believe um, a lot of the stories that they say here about uh, people get going crazy uh, in war because I've actually seen it myself, um, knowing people who have come back from particular conflicts and were uh, a little bit, you know, a couple uh, sandwiches short of a picnic. Unfortunately, I don't say that to be a, a jerk, but yeah, that's that's how it is. So, anyways, it's talking about this Mylai conflict, conflict, and it says, um, uh, "It's a." I'll, I'll just read it from this point. It says, "But at least one witness to the massacre, one of the men of Charlie Company, who did not shoot anybody that day, saw it differently." To say that my lie was simply about something that happened to us in Vietnam missed the point profoundly. Uh, Michael Bernhard would tell me 30 years later because of this Frankenstein had been born on American soil. He said, these guys were lost before we even got there. Everybody was in character that day. They didn't need an army to fine-tune them. They didn't need Vietnam to set them off. They were already that violent. They were already that way in Hawaii. It was all what they were before cultivated by a lack of leadership. We didn't need Vietnam to create the My Lai Massacre. We had a social problem in America that created it. A similar opinion has been reached by the Army War College. In 1970, it conducted an exhaustive study of leadership in the officer corps. The result was so damning that General Westmoreland, commander of the American troops in Vietnam, who had ordered the study in the first place, immediately classified it and permitted only generals to review its contents. At decades end, however, a Pentagon intelligence analyst and a retired Army officer turned academic conducted their own independent study and reached a similar verdict. The problem in Vietnam had begun... They suggested in the post-World War II years when the army remodeled itself after the management style of an ascending corporate technocracy, turning its officer corps into a few corporate executives and many middle-tier managers, officers and combat units, who were rewarded for massaging statistics and cost-benefit ratios but not for inspiring in young men the sort of loyal and brotherly ties that are the lifeblood of successful combat, as Richard A. Gabriel and Paul Savage, the authors of the study, wrote in a book based on their findings called Crisis in Command. Um, The Army's wholesale shift from the ethic of leadership to the ideal of systems management's Um, expressed so well by General Westmoreland's declaration that good management is good leadership, had its origins in the years when the United States poured its ever-expanding military budget into the coffers of defense contractors, whose way of doing business soon spread back to the military. Throughout the 1950s, more and more of the internal control practices of the business corporation were adopted by the Army. Uh, Gabriel and Savage wrote, with the appointment of Ford Motor Company executive Robert McNamara as Secretary of Defense in 1961, the identification of the two structures was nearly complete. In other words, the explanation for the breakdown in Army discipline lay in part not in the dank terrain of Vietnam, Uh, but in the dry, statistically rationalizing realms of managements like McDonnell Douglas, 
long before that company's DC-3 became Vietnam's notorious Puff the Magic Dragon for its fire-breathing pyrotechnic combination of magnesium flares and rapid-fire machine guns that sped out precise 6,000 bullets per minute, McDonnell Douglas and its fellow defense contractors dropped over the military and a, manager, a managerial grid that would go a long way towards destroying the traditional social relations of soldiers. Um, the point is, I'm, I'm using this information as Chris and I have, pro, have proposed in previous calls that Vietnam was not so much a war over communism or uh, controlling the drug trade or any any of the type of proposed ideas that the Vietnam War was a social experiment to change the culture of America entirely. To yeah, create, I think it was a social engineering program from, yeah, from and, beginning and, to end. And so this is more evidence of that. That's what all these wars are. Social social engineering, restructuring. Well, Chris, would you say that what I just read is more evidence of that? That that by restructuring the military, even, you know, regardless of what you think about the military, not you, Chris, but anybody in general, regardless of what you think about the military or having a military or anything – it was something that was kind of ingrained into American culture already. You know what the military is, from my perspective? It's like what? it's like public school on steroids. <laughs> That's yes. what it's like. That's yeah. what it is. And and so an interesting part about this is the restructuring of it in a corporate fashion. A kind of cold, calculated corporate fashion, not having, not having anything to do with you know the atrocities that that can kind of the sociopathic behavior that can kind of, um, uh, you know, create. Um, but but what the author is saying is that kind of behavior kind of already existed within cold civilization that exists here, right? And that this restructuring of this military created a new person that would come out of that conflict. You see? Yes. Uh-huh. So there was there was kind of a um, a loss of the idea of loyalty. The idea of loyalty had kind of gone out the window. And this is an interesting um, – Well, let me say this. So why – okay, social engineering, like war war as social engineering. Like why war? Okay, um, I've heard in the past like suggestions that, oh, yeah, war is simulated, you know, like, oh, not, not all the deaths happen. It's like I, I reject that idea. I, I don't – it's. I don't think it's worth really, you know, you know, speculating on that, or, 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 because 
it's back to what you were talking about earlier, sex and death. With the social engineering, you, you're going into a context where, like, your life is at stake. So that you're in this, you're in this military organization so that you are going to have this adherence to this hierarchy based on this very true uh, life or death situation. And then those, those, um, that, that systematic uh, retooling of your brain, that's going to be set, those experiences are going to set those ideals firmly within you. And then people in the military, they go into the wider society, they influence society, they go into their own, uh, you know, ex-military. There's a lot of ex-military out there in different uh, corporate roles as we speak. Think about that. There's this, there's this cross-pollination, this synergy between cross the military and, and the corporate world. Absolutely. And, uh, and here's what it was leading up to. Okay. Chapter four of this book, Stiffed, The Betrayal of the American Man. <laughs> this is going to be a, long, a little bit of a long thread, but it's going to be good. Um, <clears throat> now, this is written by a feminist, right? Yeah. At the, at the recession of the early – as. As the recession of the early 1990s abated, it seemed that the woes of discarded corporate men would be an unpleasant but largely closed chapter in the annals of American masculinity. Yet high rates of downsizing quietly continued. Between 95 and 97, about 8 million people were laid off due to corporate restructuring, plant closings, and economic dislocation. The difference was that this time the dislocation was unheralded. The media largely ignored it. The company man was still falling down, just not on the cover of Newsweek. The second time around, he was an old story and one that conflicted with the new narrative of America's boom economy. Left out of that narrative were certain unpleasant facts. Men's real wages continued a seemingly exonerable decline from the 1970s. A slight improvement from the late 90s still left men's median weekly earnings below 1979 levels. Men's job tenure continued to drop their median years with the same employer falling nearly 20% from 1983 to 1998, even as women's rose 5%. As each new group of men's entering the workforce fell behind the earning power of their male elders, the boom was being built on the busted back of a contingent temporary contracted out no or low benefits, no guaranteed workforce. Employees laid off in the early 1990s recession were much less likely to get their old jobs back than those laid off in any of the last four national economic downturns. And the employees who did get reemployed were more likely to wind up in part-time jobs. The post-war pact between employer and employee had been built on a foundational notion about loyalty, a belief that a bond strengthened over time was the basis for a sturdy masculine identity. 
There was no such thing as the company woman. While being laid off was an agony for a female employee, the one aspect of her life it didn't ruin was her feminine identity. Men throughout America discovered in the 80s and 90s that that the contract that they thought they had with their employer was a lie. They had played by the company's rules even when they secretly found them inane and counterproductive. They had been good soldiers and good sons, yet they were receiving dishonorable discharges. Each had individually been used and kicked out like a dog as a laid-off transportation manager working as a secretary wrote of himself, I was someone, now I'm nothing, just a temp. Okay. So you have the identity, you have the identity of, you know, we've talked about this before that you had this culture that was built up of people identifying with their jobs, identifying masculinity with work, right? The organization, it's all man. organization, man, all that type of stuff. Okay. Now, <laughs> here we go with what we were just talking about. Uh, Football has been a part of um, the American male ritual since the 1890s. It was first embraced on the college gridiron during the great imperial and masculine anxieties of the turn of the century. Its founding father, Walter Camp, was a clock company executive for whom the new sport represented, according to historian Michael Oriard, the ideal training ground for a managerial elite who would run a new business world of trusts and combines. Camp transformed rugby into a modern football with one key rule change. A team was assigned possession of the ball before the play began. In rugby, the teams grappled in a big mass to claim the ball. From the start, then, football was about the maintenance of control and dominance which is undoubtedly why it remained primarily a college sport until the end of World War II. College being, in the pre-GI Bill era, the preeminent province for the training of a ruling class. Unlike baseball, where the object was to send a ball careening anarchically through a lineup of functionaries in the field to disrupt, not uphold the established system. Football was predicated on controlling the ball at all costs and conquering every last inch of your opponent's territory. But in the pre-war days, football had another face as well, one more familiar on the factory floor than in the company boardroom. Uh, Pro football, as opposed to college football, was the sport of the steel worker, the iron worker, and the miner, whose faces long before they were helmeted and smeared with anti-reflective face paint had been covered with the soot and sweat of manual labor. This version of the game emerged on the soggy snowbound fields of America's heavy industrial belt in gritty contests between underfunded teams with names like the Ironton Tanks and the Providence Steamroller. In the wake of the Second World War, the athletic field would be mythologized as a heroic wilderness from a masculine past, which the American is still a frontiersman, still like his ancestors pressing on as sports chronicler John Tunis would write in 1958. But the new frontiersmen of the gridiron, like the new post-war nation they belong to, would find themselves caught up in a very different game. 
The rise of professional football as a popular sport after the war has generally been seen by both its defenders and detractors as an expression on the playing field of the country's new preeminence on the world stage. With the American century upon it, the nation seized upon a game that seemed to be all about triumphal leadership or to the less enamored overweening imperialism. By the mid-1950s, professional football was emerging from the long shadow of baseball. It was thriving while attendance at major and minor league baseball, as well as at college football, slumped. As a metaphor, pro football entered the new imperial language of power and of power holders in America. Not for nothing did football come to be termed the establishment's game. Not for nothing was the presidential briefcase holding the nuclear missile launch commands called the football. (laughs) Our imperial presidents, from JFK to Nixon to Reagan, were entranced with the power of gridiron imagery. Nixon ostentatiously watched football while anti-war protesters marched on Washington. Reagan even clothed his presidency in shoulder pads and helmet taking as his uh, taking as uh, his name the Gipper after Notre Dame star player of the 1920s George Gipp whom he had portrayed in the 1940 movie Newt Rockney All-American um Uh, it goes it goes into some sociological things here, but that's pretty interesting. I'll just read this one part. But the fans' relationship to the game was never that conveniently straightforward. For the working class spectator, supporting his team was also a way of fighting against marginalization, a way of clinging to the idea that national destiny was still something played out by the common man on a muddy field, even in an era dominated by skyboxes, television, and astroturf. Uh, One of the great mistakes of superficial observers is to believe that players do all the work while fans merely sit passive and vicariously have have things done for them. Philosopher and sports devotee Michael Novak has written, describing his own experiences watching football as an ordeal, an exercise, a struggle lived through. Football was a working man's way of resisting being sidelined even as he sat in the stands. Here he might still believe himself a central player in one of his culture's central dramas. Hmm. Now, um... So the the con- the connectivity here is that moving down through the 20th century post World War II period, we have a shift. We have a social engineering through a war. Um, I just gave evidence there as the, how that was planned out through changing a more kind of um, a more kind of camaraderie to a more kind of organization man type uh, scenario kind of every man for himself type deal mm-hmm. 
uh, the peop- the man who would come out of that would be more sociopathic in a way, more kind of cutthroat in business, mm-hmm. um, more prone to go along with a system. Mm-hmm. And parallel to this, up, you have the rise of football and professional sports as a um, as a big interest. Yes. And so much so being used as a metaphor for the Cold War period, it looks like. Um, and that may have just been kind of like a something that you could connect to you see it's kind of portrayed in that way and and there's this kind of metaphor for this fake rivalry this cold war you know the american century and empire and you know triumphant type type stuff i can definitely identify with that i'm sure you can too growing up in the 80s like how important football was oh yeah i mean it still is obviously but there was like because i'd say like the the 80s was a pretty um pioneering time for uh televised sports Mm. and it was kind of a new experience because the um, afl was around up until i was trying to remember when the afl faded out did it go up until the 90s no, it, it was League. it was gone. It was like gone. In the, it was gone like in the seventies. I remember the Dallas Cowboys being a big freaking deal. Of course, I remember that. Yeah. That's all I remember too. Tom Landry. Yeah. Like they I were. Never even, yeah. I, I never even watched football. Uh, you know, barely, but you know, t- Dallas Cowboys, Tom Landry, big deal. Um, you know, and and it's interesting that well, it's interesting that you and I both remember that 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 you know we were kind of you know young, and that's kind of imprinted. In our memory, it's like, you know, you and I may have trouble remembering certain things, but but damn it, Chris, if we, we're going to freaking remember who Tom Landry and the Dallas Cowboys are. Now, who was their big rival? Hmm. Was it the Steelers? No. No, I don't know then. I have no idea. Redskins. Redskins. Oh, right. Joe Theismann. Think about that. Oh, the Cowboys and the Indians. <laughs> yeah. I'm not going to say it. Oh, yes. Wow. Dang. And That's good. And we know sports is rigged. Oh, of course. Dang. That's a good kid. I never even thought of that. Mm-hmm. Now, what what that exactly signifies, I'm not exactly sure, but um, yeah, being that sort of that that era that we're talking about, 
as far as pro football goes was um, pre- prior to that. I don't think it was now. There, of course, there was you know f- football has been very popular for a long time, but pri- you know of course prior to the eighties. But I, I don't think I, I don't think that I think yeah what that was like sort of a um, a, a a point where it is it, it kind of was on its way to what it is now where yeah. it's really starting to develop what its character that it that it's kind of morphed into now yep and that was the that was the point and and like i was saying this kind of these things parallel each other in the development of the adult child and all those things that that I kind of uh, read about there, whether it was whether it was the the uh, the decline in masculinity with with the war and the more I'm focused on you know focusing less on on the you know like I was saying like a camaraderie type thing. I don't obviously I don't believe in in military industrial complex military or um, could you hear me um, yeah say something I said obviously I don't believe military military industrial complex you know military and things like that but um like I said, this had become ingrained into society by the time by the time World War Two had come around that we were a war based economy, a war based nation. People incorporated it into their way of life, and to have such a radical shift into from a camaraderie based military to a systems based uh organization man based military is a big shift and the man who came out on the other side was different and he was most likely more childlike mm-hmm. and parallel paralleling this is the rise of professional sports that was going to further maintain you within that realm of uh, extended adolescence. Well, there's one thing I'm not exactly clear on. Like, say, prior to this uh, organization man culture kind of coming into the military, what would be the uh, upward mobility as far as rising in the ranks prior to that sort of mindset? I mean, because the military has always been, you know, by its definition, uh, 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 a, you know, a structured organizational, you know, artificial construct, you know. Well, the, the, point, she, the point she's making is that in, in earlier time periods, it was more about loyalty – and camaraderie amongst um, amongst uh, your uh, uh, division, 
I get, or, or you know, like your so that, uh, so that your value as far as being uh, advancing to the ranks of general would be predicated upon the loyalty of your uh, comrade comrades it, to recognizing you as leader a leader uh, in in among the ranks as opposed to. Uh, something that's like sort of uh, initiated top down. I guess to kind of clarify that somewhat. That's absolutely. And then another point that she makes in there is that generals and people were brought in for certain divisions instead of you rising up through your division to become general of that division. Mm-hmm. So it's like you know, maybe, maybe let's say I'm top dog in my division, and they say, "Okay, Adams, you're not rising up because we're bringing in General Kendall here from the Pentagon, and he's going to run it, and he's a, and you've got one of those things where you've got like 300 bars on your thing, but the only thing you've been is like a, is like an intelligence spook your entire life, instead yeah. of actually seeing combat, you've been a desk jockey your whole life." Right, and then of course there's the uh, officer enlisted uh, configuration in the military, where you have, um, which I think you know. See, I was in the Navy for six years in the uh, from late '80s to the '90s, and uh, it was um, one thing. You know, looking back on it and stuff, and how uh, so your or your your organizational culture and everything in the military. There's some things that stand out as you're, uh, you know, you're you're going about your work a day on the ship and everything. Is that you have this, you know, hierarchy, and there are the uh, chiefs. That's what we call the 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 higher ranking enlisted guys. You know, so you have chief, master chief, and, uh, you know, that are enlisted that have been in for, you know, typically 15, maybe 20 years ago. They may go 30-year retirements or, you know, what de- just depends. Then you have like an ensign, which will be like a sort of an entry-level officer that's, um, you know, a, a commissioned officer. And and it's, it's kind of uh, – peculiar thing about it because they outrank the chiefs and the chiefs have more experience and actually know what the hell's going on when the ensign has could have like very little but he still outranks the chief and you see some interesting dynamics take place in that context and all that but um there within that i think that they're uh there has been some uh, that that w- w- what I'm talking about maybe have been a result of something that ha- is a is a you know that's been implemented since Vietnam, like what she's talking about in this book, where there is like a, a shift away from experience and 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 those enlisted being more sort of having predominance at a you know a time period in the past and then sort of the uh emphasis sort of shifting over to like the officer ranks because typically to be an officer you have to have some kind of a degree and uh 
there's like um, uh, typically, you know, you, you, you talk about this, uh, you know, crossover between, you know, corporate world and uh, the the military is which, um, you know, these higher ranking officers that have like the experience and the commission and all that going on to, you know, like into corporate roles after that. So that's like another that's like another thing that's like I think has been um yeah it cre- it, it helped to create the the type of man who is going to come out into the world after that so it, yeah. you know because a lot of people did and you know like say like take for instance your dad mm-hmm. right your dad got out of Vietnam and he became a cop right yeah you know, or like anybody, I mean, I know so many people who come out of Iraq and what do they do? They go into the police force. They go into Homeland Security. They go into, and it's it's organizational culture, you know, as, you know, this is not a debate over whether war is good or bad. Obviously, war is bad and war is contrived and it's phony and it's, you know, the reasons to go do it are all made up and the conflicts and rivalries are all bogus, but, um, but there's a certain type of man who came out of the previous war who was still, who still had an, an inkling of humanity left in him. And part of that came from having this connection with the guys that he went to war with and the people who came out of Vietnam, um, because of the way that war was uh, engineered and the social engineering that was going on, they were they were dehumanized. Mm-hmm. You see, there was a further dehumanizing. Not that the people in World War Two or Korea weren't dehumanized either, but it was a different type of man that was created out of each individual uh, war. It's it's like the, it's like interesting the um, that you know to a certain extent. Like I'm not saying this definitively. I'm just saying like let's let's say in World War Two, World War Two created men, and Vietnam created created adult men or adult children. Mm-hmm. Well, it it was like a like what you read about earlier, where it's where they came into that environment already preconditioned to become what exactly. the uh, military was going to, you know, eventually. Which I, which I think would be a process of um, concretizing or solidification. Yeah, and, and one, one more thing is the point I was reading about, you know, by the time the 1990s had rolled around on through the 70s, uh, corpor- corporations just discarding people who had given their entire lives to things. Well, you come out of the army prepped for that corporate world, and then you get, you've been embedded with this idea that work means being 
that work and masculinity are the same thing. Mm-hmm. And you have that ripped out from you and you're tossed aside. And society is telling you that, oh, you know, work equals masculinity. Work equals being an adult. And now you're flip-flopping from job to job and you have no stability. This is this causes a further breakdown and, and creates more impetus for that um, adult child, child, adult, uh, you know, um, the meeting of the meeting of child with adult. Right. The, 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 the further blurring of the lines between the two is what I'm saying. Right, because uh, I think a, 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 another important aspect of it is like dependency, which um, like listening to a lot of Alan Watt, you know, he'd bring this up, uh, uh, you know, how, how civilization is how um, always kind of moving towards greater and greater interdependency. Well, how it, how it impacts the life of the average person uh, it's going to uh, have that uh, the consequences or, or, or that that uh, effect of where you you develop this identity that's associated with your particular like work or profession career. Then you 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 enter into this um, condition of dependency with your employer, so that with that relationship there and it being like a sort of like you're talking about where it's, it's, it's just something now that's uh, identified as uh, adult adulthood. But in, in reality, it's like this, you're in this sort of state of being in this uh, sort of subservient childlike dependent state. And then you enter in because this is something that like um, this is another thing I ran across too that's is pretty interesting uh, in light of all this modern day talk about healthcare and all that. Well, the, this has all gone through multiple phases, just like everything else. But I didn't even know this, and but I think it was a Corbett report. I, I like to watch him from time to time. He really brings up some really interesting stuff. Uh, it was going into the workers' guilds, and um, there was like there was all these workers' guilds that were really popular around a certain era. Uh, it was pre-depression era, I think, around that general time frame. And um, so it was like totally voluntary. It wasn't anything like a un- it wasn't like a union type situation, kind of, but not exactly. But from what from what I understand, and uh, that's where people had uh, health care. And then they would, um, through that, like doctors had to uh, negotiate these workers' guilds to get, um, you know, so so the price of health care and everything was really reasonable back, you know, back in that time and everything. But 
it, 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 you know, we talk about this stuff, we, we talk about things going in incremental phases and steps. So, you know, you go back previous to that and it was more of a self-sufficient condition and it progressed along to a more of a collective, but still at the same time was it, it was a collective sort of a voluntary group effort type situation to where everyone kind of got taken care of and you paid into the system and then now you go to 2017 and we have this Obamacare monstrosity or whatever the hell it is. I still don't understand what's going on with all of that. But the, but the, but the point is, and the, I think the bottom line as far as that goes, it's like it's, it's gone over to the acceptance of now, the, now this abstraction called the government takes care of our health care. So it went from, you know, sometime in the past where workers' guilds, kind of voluntary system is very more kind of an independent thing or something that would be more of a, you know, I'm going to say power to the people because I can't think of nothing else better to say. But anyway, so but now we come to this current state of affairs where it's like everyone is kind of acquiesced to – uh, governmental health care but it's kind of this weird uh, kind of uh, corporate mandate we were mandated to buy corporate insurance it's really uh, not not uh, straightforward socialist health care but you see what I'm getting at it's more of like mm-hmm. this this condition now where it's well, regulated to more of an abstraction, I guess. That's right. Because, and you know, that's what I'm saying is, and, and you're saying too, is that this is, this is something that has taken us all the way down to the level of big, big kids, big children. And you expect certain things to be paid for. You know, there's certain things that you can't do anything about, obviously, if you're working and you get stuff taken out of your paycheck uh, for for unemployment, by all means, if you get unemployed, take it. Don't don't say like, oh, I'm going to fight the system by uh, not taking my unemployment. No, they stole that money from you. Yeah. Yeah. So you see. So so so, yes, by all means, take it. And, And so the you know just be aware you know it's 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 one thing to be aware of it and know that it's happening it's another thing to to um be fully immersed in the the system and believe it's great believe me i mean i know 60 year old people who um who you know believe in believe that the government is their parents yeah it's it's Enough. spoken about like uh, even tax returns. I've never heard anybody say that. I'm going to fight the system and not get my tax return this year. But you know, <laughs> people will get their tax return. But it's but it, the point I want to make about that is like it's interesting how people regard the tax return. It's almost like a, a gift from daddy. You know what I'm saying? Like, oh, I'm going to do this, this yeah. and other thing. Like, it's like it's mad money. It's like it's like no, that's your income that you're getting retroactively through this convoluted bullcrap. Exactly. Thing. But uh, 
Yeah. But well, on on that note, we'll call it a call. We'll call it another hoaxbusters call. Call the call. Call the call. Yeah, it was a good one. I enjoyed the conversation. And um, if you do get a tax return and you like what Chris and I do, you could donate to Hoaxbusters Call. Yeah, fight the system by donating to Hoaxbusters Call. That's right. <laughs> oh, by the way, uh, I got the Copaiba oil. Oh, you got the Copaiba? Oh, yeah, good. I, um, I've been putting it on my, uh, what the hell they call these things? Cancer, skin cancer, cancer. From working in the sun, all for yeah. <laughs> so let's see what happens on my see if it cures skin cancer. You know, uh, we'll probably we'll, what we'll do is after you've experienced the copaiba oil, mm-hmm. we will do a essential oils call because now you've been able to experience the uh, kit and you've. Uh, ordered uh, separate oils besides the kit on your own and you can tell everybody what you think and um, I can give uh, some some information as to uh, how beneficial they are as well. Yeah, because uh, like I said, these are really good things to have around. This stuff smells it's like what, what it's some kind of spruce or something oil. It doesn't have a really strong smell like some of the other ones, but the smell the, of it the, is the like copaiba? yeah. It but it's got this really interesting smell. I mean, it's hard. I know it's. I know. I know it's kind of like a. It, it's like a subtle. It's like so. It's not real strong smelling, but it's like a really good smell. I don't know. I I, I really like the smell of it. Well, yeah. I think I think like like myself or like other. Uh, other guys, including uh, somebody who just got a kit from me, um, listener, the Nova Scotian. That's what he likes to go by. Uh-huh. Um, he just purchased a kit. So thank you, the Nova Scotian, for purchasing a kit. And um, and uh, he says he, he likes uh, tree, you know, smells. This is like a it's like a it almost smells like lumber like good yeah. fresh cut lumber or something it's and like, and I, I like tree I like tree oils too so um, especially fur tree so like there's a you know there's a bunch of fur oils and things like that like uh, pine trees you know um, yeah so yeah men men tend to like that type of stuff Uh <laughs> Yeah, I got the cedar, and I got this, and yeah, I kind of lean towards the uh, wood wood smelling. I like I like it a lot. You're gonna like that copaiba. Not only does it smell like a tree, but it's got the cannabinoids in it, and um, it's, yeah, cannabinoids. That's what that's what it's got in there. It's it's it is a cannabinoid, but it's yeah, not it hemp derived. It's derived from a a tree, which that's interesting. Yeah, yeah, it's 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 cool stuff. It's good, you, you know. Well, I can't speak to its uh, cancer curing effects quite yet, 
because I just got well, it. I just, I'm, you can I'm do easy. it tomorrow, tomorrow, or to, or tonight. You put two drops in a glass of water and you drink it too. Oh, you can drink it. Yeah. Can I put it in my water right now? You can. do that have some copaiba water i put them in little gel caps and take them like pills so so it has internal beneficiaries like uh like a cannabinoid oil would that's kind yeah, of like we, the idea i'm gonna send i'm gonna send you a recipe for the for the for the big for the big immunity bomb oh right on Keep your yeah. immunities uh, yeah, there's, there's a, there's cranked a, up. There's a good oil mixture with all the stuff that you got that um, that uh, you do this oil mix and you can put it in a capsule. I think you can probably put it in a in a glass of water too. I'm sure, but um, yeah, you make a big immunity bomb and you can put it from um, it's got copaiba in it, and frankincense, and all sorts of stuff. So. I'll send that over, but um, but yeah, if anybody's interested in essential oils, send me an email. Yeah, there's and, a uh, con- contact link at uh, hoaxpleasurescall.com if anybody's interested. Yeah, yeah I, man, I really like them, and I'm not just saying that to <laughs> pimp them or anything. It's just like no. I, 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 you know, I have used different ones before. I've always kind of use them off and on but it's like now that i kind of got this kit i can you know i got i I mess around with different ones put them in the diffuser and all that it's like um yeah that's really good to have around so i got i got me some uh doc doc bronner soap to uh, the unscented so i'm gonna dabble around with that see what kind of configurations i can get with the uh oils and all that and uh yeah, it's just it's just uh, uh, a good uh, household medicine cabinet uh, equip uh, equip your household yeah, medicine mo- most cabinet. Pe- with most people don't stuff. know that they yeah most people don't know that they're using synthetic blends of them in their everyday household stuff anyways. So it's like yeah, that's what all that you, stuff is anyway. Yeah, if you've got if you've got scented soap of any kind it's you it's most likely using a synthetic form of an essential oil right you know um, this is the real deal you know and it's like you can tell the difference it's not just hype about all this stuff you know oh it's natural and it's it's not that at all I, i haven't had any complaints yet and i haven't had anybody tell me that the quality wasn't up to snuff or anything. So everybody's been totally happy and I know they will be because I was happy when I got them. I was, you know, I was like, Whoa, dude, this is the way it should smell. This is, <laughs> these are the way these things should perform. You yeah. know, all that. I've been telling your people. laundry with, uh, I threw some stuff in the dryer and what did I put in there? I put the cedar in there, I think. And, uh, yeah, to kind of not to kind of give your clothes a a nice kind of fresh natural mm-hmm. smell. You know, yeah. if you got it's like a like I wear my shirts and stuff over and over without washing them. You know, but yeah, you know, too. 
and then I'll throw if like a shirt starts to get kind of to the point where it's like, yeah, I need to kind of like tune it up a little bit or something. You could throw yeah, it in there and fun. kind of freshen it up. Start, starting to get funky, but you know the cool thing about it is is we've been using the stuff in the wash for uh, for you know years now, I guess, and. Um, and it gets the stuff cleaner than any of the, you know, that was one of my main problems with regular detergents is it really didn't get the clothes clean. It's like I'm right. wearing a white, I'm wearing a white t-shirt right now, like a white v-neck t-shirt. Uh-huh. I, I could not get my, I know this sounds gross, but I'm just, you know, any guy out there will have this problem. I could not get my arm, the armpits on the shirt to be clean mm-hmm. ever. You'd end up having to throw them out because you'd have sweat stains. Yeah. One thing is now I don't I don't use, you know, regular deodorant. And two, this, you know, uh, stuff mixed with like a natural, you know, a uh, soap, not a detergent, a soap. Yeah. With with essential oils, the cool thing about essential oils, then I really have to go to bed because I'm I'm falling asleep here. But the the cool thing about essential oils is the oil itself helps break up dirt. That's why you can put lemon oil into uh, your, you know, your dish. Your uh, you can use lemon oil helps break up grease just naturally. Yeah, I, I, I was talking about that before. I put it in my dish soap, and um, yeah, I really got my glasses cl- like really clean. Like it was, it was just cutting through the crud, and it was just like a yeah, couple that's, of drops of it in there. That, that's why they put orange oil in like um, pumice soap. If you ever worked in a garage or a warehouse, um, they put. Um, you know, when I used to work at the bullet shop, I was working on machines all day. They have this pumice soap. Oh yeah, I got a big jug of that myself. Yeah, pumice soap, and and it's it's uh, it's got orange oil in there because citrus oil helps break grease up. It helps you know, uh, lift it off of your skin. So you put uh, citrus oil in your laundry detergent, it's going to help break up dirt in your clothes as well. So just a helpful hint there. Yeah, and it really, it, well, like you're saying, that's what the stuff is in this artificial synthesized stuff. It's based on the real stuff. Yeah, it's based, based on real stuff. Here, here's another one. So synthesized stuff that you use now at one time really did have something that was pine salt. Right. Pine salt used to be pine oil. Right. Real pine because oil. Pine, yeah, because pine oil is a clean is a cleaning agent. It helps disinfect and clean. Now they obviously use a synthesized pine oil or pine scent to go along with you know, the perceived idea that you're actually using something. People have just gotten used to the smell over time and that's all they need. They don't actually, you know, they probably put something else in there as a disinfectant of some sort. But, um, yeah, pine oil in and of itself is a disinfectant. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so. Yeah. Well, that's right. That's real masculinity right there, okay? Just so you know. You think you think you think essential oils is girly? It's not. No, it's manly. Stuff smells like lumber, man. 
It's manly, okay? It's real stuff. It's real right, stuff, dude. yeah. Real stuff is just... Not it's real. It's real. It's not only manly. It's, it's just, real. It's just human, you know? It's just human. Yeah. Yeah. You, man. All, All right. right, dude. Have a good night. Get, get a good sleep. All right, you too. Put on your, put on your diffuser. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Later. Later.
Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.